Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a pretty exciting founder. We have a founder in New York and obviously, you know, a founder that, uh, you know, has uh, been there, done it, you know, like he's been building and scaling his business very, very nicely. Uh, and I think that we're going to be learning a lot, uh, a lot of stories as well, fueled with adrenaline. So uh, without further ado, let me welcome our guest today, Drew McElroy. Welcome to the show. Hello, Alejandro. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So originally born in Patterson, New Jersey, and I know that your parents were originally from New York. Obviously, they 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 moved to Patterson to try to get, you know, less crime and so forth. But I don't think that that was much helpful. So tell us about. Well, your I mean, I guess it depends on how you define these things. But yeah, no, I, uh, I it's correct. I was born in Patterson and I lived there uh, with my family until at, at 18 months old. Uh, myself and my father and my grandfather were, were for going for a walk on our street uh, and we were robbed at gunpoint. Uh, and so that was um, that was very much the end of Patterson as far as my mother was concerned. And so, uh, uh, you know, I've made it back here to living in New York now as an adult. But I, I, I grew up in the, in the New Jersey suburbs, which was a wonderful place to grow up. Maybe maybe not quite as uh, energetic as it is here in New York, but uh, I'm not one to complain. I can't imagine. And then also, you were the first in the family to go to college. I'm sure that everyone was super proud of you. Well, you know, it's funny. I managed to do a lot of silly things in my life. So you get the proudness of the parents, and then they're like, did you really crash the car? And then they're not so proud. So, like, you get, you know, you got to have balance in life. But, uh, yeah, I was I was, I was, was very fortunate. I, you know, and it's something that I've taken forward as a, as somebody who's, you know, at least looked at as a grown up in my own mind, I'm still, uh, still a kid, but you know, I, I think those people who have, um, whose parents, uh, have sacrificed, you know, a great deal to give them a, a better life than they had. Uh, I, I genuinely believe that anyone who doesn't take that honor with great respect is, is, is disrespecting themselves and their family and everything else. So I, I've always been acutely aware of both how lucky I am and, and how much my parents sacrificed, you know, chance favors the prepared mind, right? It's it's luck, but it's luck that was driven by the hard work of my parents. And I, it's my job to honor that and and do the best I can for not only for myself and and, and our continued family, but but for 
but for the world to be somebody that that our family is proud of. So I'm I'm a very lucky person. Of course, and uh, obviously in this case, you know, entrepreneurship did run in the family, and uh, you know they kind of like capture us employee number three after graduating. <laughs> so tell us about this. Yeah, my poor mom. My poor mom is a relatively risk averse person, and both my father and myself are you know, varying degrees of insane. And so, yes, um, my dad uh, came home one day uh, in 1987 uh, from a job as a, as a VP of sales and said, I'm going to quit and start a business. Uh, and my mother said, are you nuts? And he said, yes, I am. And, and he did it. Uh, and, and he built a, a business that, that was so successful that 10 years later, when he was the only employee, My mother called him from her job and said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm too busy. And so she quit her job. And then it was the two of them. And they knocked down the wall into the guest bedroom. And that was the family business. Uh, and then I graduated from undergrad uh, and decided that I should join the family business and we should grow it. Uh, and of course, that made my dad's eyes sparkle and my mom roll her eyes. Uh, and and, and we, we launched that journey. Um, so what, kind of, what kind of business was this? Yeah, so um, it was very germane ultimately to what what Transfix, the, my current business, would become. Uh, but this business is uh, was called a third party logistics company, uh, and what effectively that means is uh, you you provide uh, effectively consultative logistics solutions for uh, large retail, large CPG businesses, um, and ultimately execute those things. But you don't. You do it without actually owning the assets. So it is highly complex, engineered transportation solutions, uh, which to anybody who's not familiar with the business, that probably sounds incredibly boring, uh, which is not an unreasonable charge. But, but nonetheless, that is what we do. And it's, uh, it's fundamentally critical to the businesses we serve, right? I mean, businesses, many of them are in, are in the business of, of selling widgets. Uh, and in, able, in order to do that, you have to get the widgets where they need to be. Uh, and that can be a fairly complex endeavor. And that is ultimately where my personal domain expertise and my family and, and then now the two businesses that I've been involved with, uh, th that's that's sort of where we live. So how was it like, uh, you know, really working with your parents? You know, I guess especially, you know, your parents <laughs> together and you also working with them. I mean, what kind of conversation was during dinner time? <laughs> uh, yeah. If I heard my parents say one more time, This is the way we've always done it. I was going to jump out of the window. Uh, and that ultimately is why, you know, to be blunt, I really couldn't do it anymore. I mean, my, my parents are, are wonderful people, like, I, like I've already articulated, and, and I am incredibly lucky. But to be their business partners and their son um, was a lot. Uh, and, there, and there was without question uh, sort of a generational difference in philosophy, whereas they prefer smoothness, uh, I, I sort of prefer upsetting the apple cart, right? Like I'm not happy unless we're continuing to move and improve things. And I, I can understand if you're at a different phase of life that how that can be a real pain in the ass, uh, which like I, you know, I've been called a pain in the ass many times, so that's nothing new. Um, and so uh, it was sort of that combination of experiences, both realizing, frankly, just how Um, Luddite-ish uh, logistics and transportation on the supply chain were historically, uh, and 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 therefore the sort of opportunity that technology 
uh, presented to drive significant value in, in, in several different vectors. It was sort of that thesis and or SWOT analysis that ultimately convinced me to, to make the jump from leaving the family business to, to starting Transfix. So then let's talk about Transfix, because I know that, you know, you started talking to, to smart people uh, and, eventually, and eventually this led you to talk with, uh, with a venture firm. I mean, how the hell do you start, you know, talking with a venture firm, especially, you know, like giving like the traditional, you know, mindset and background from also working with your parents? Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest with you, Alejandro. I I screwed it up in so many different ways. Like, if 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 folks are listening to this, uh, I, I can certainly give uh, <laughs> I can certainly give examples of how perseverance is a good thing, but but maybe don't follow the exact path I took because there's a lot of pain in there that may not be necessary. Um, so yeah, I so the actual story is I, I basically fully formulated the idea for what I wanted to do. Uh, in 2012, um, and and I could articulate it in a pretty and frankly, if you listen to me then and you listen to me now, articulate the value creation thesis for the business. That actually hasn't changed all that much. But whereas I knew the supply chain cold, I did not know, frankly, the first thing about raising capital or building a tech stack or you know, frankly, even building a team. I mean, I had built a small team at my parents' company, but. Nothing like the sort of talent and expectations of a, of a venture-backed startup. So what do you do? Well, in my case, I, I jokingly refer to it as my real-world MBA. Uh, I, as we've mentioned, I live and I'm from New York. Uh, but at the time, I, I basically uh, went to San Francisco, uh, and I basically spent uh, the better part of 18 months sleeping on couches and doing people favors. Um, I, I may be a bit of a pain in the ass, but I am occasionally likable as well. And so I did everything I possibly could to befriend every smart person I could find within the startup ecosystem, whether they be founders or investors or, or frankly, lawyers or, or anything else, just to figure out what it was I was trying to do, because I, I really didn't have a plan. Um, but again, if you're a relatively intelligent person and you spend some time listening and thinking, you can figure those things out. Uh, and so my, my sort of process or, or, or the conclusion I came to was that I was not going to be able to get out of the starting gate on my own. I, I really and truly needed a technical co-founder to, to stand beside me and, and to build the business with me. Um, which anybody who's tried to do that knows that that can also recruiting such a such a partner again with with no no leads can be a tricky thing. Um, and again, I, I got very lucky. There's a guy by the name of Richard Kirby. Kirby, if you're listening to this, you're the man. Uh, who at the time was a a, a partner at Benrock, uh, and his uh, he introduced me at the time to the person who is to this day my partner. Uh, and his name is Jonathan Salama, and he was a he was an EIR at Benrock at the time, coming off of startup number three, I think it was then. So clearly, he and I were of different backgrounds. Um, but bluntly speaking, as soon as we came together, we realized pretty quickly we we thought we had all the skills we needed to make this happen. Got it. So then, so then I guess what happened after? Because I know that. For nine months, I mean, you guys were literally like building the initial stack. Uh, and I yeah. understand as well that uh, you were dealing with, you know, what, what it always happens in a business like this, which is the chicken and the egg problem. I always say that I want to 
shoot the chicken and step on the egg. That's how frustrated <laughs> I get when building marketplaces. Yeah, the, the, uh, the it is it is tricky to get over that initial inertia. So so what do we do, right? Well, so we we the first thing we did was we we had to divide and conquer. So at the time we had we had nothing. We had no technology. We had no money. We had no customers. Um, and and neither he nor I personally had any money really either. Uh, so it was it was it was without question uh, the toughest professional time of my life. Um, and so okay. Well, the plan was um, we need to build enough momentum and traction so that we, we can go out and raise a seat. So what does that mean? Well, first, we need an MVP. Uh, if we don't have a product, then we're really not going to go anywhere. And bluntly speaking, I wasn't going to be very helpful in, 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 in writing the code for the MVP. That is, that is clearly not my strong suit. So we sort of made the decision, okay, Jonathan, you head down in the bunker and just build. We know what it is. We spent all the time together articulating the product roadmap and the feature set and all that. And just make it happen. And my job, while he was doing that, was to do effectively everything else, which really meant uh, first demand, first supply, raise a friends and family round, incorporate the business, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so in our particular case, uh, again, going back to what I said earlier, I'm not recommending anybody else take this path, uh, but, it, but it works for us. Um, and so, but then again, in fairness, it was incredibly lucky. Uh, so we met, we decided to found the business. I, you know, danced a little jig because I had been after this for, you know, 12 months on my own and now I've got a partner. And so sort of in my euphoria, I went and I updated my LinkedIn profile, uh, just to say CEO and founder of Transfix. Now, if you looked at that, we didn't have a website, we didn't have a logo, you, you, you couldn't find anything. Um, but. This is why it pays to be nice to people. Uh, previously in my career, I had met a man by the name of Angelo Ventrone, who I was connected with on LinkedIn. And so Ange was the, uh, the SVP of global logistics for Barnes & Noble. And he must have got one of those little things on LinkedIn that says, you know, little notification that said, oh, Drew has started a new job. Uh, honest to God, within 30 minutes of updating LinkedIn, my cell phone rings and it's him. And Angelo is a wonderful, wonderful man who is a friend to this day. But you have to understand, when you're starting a company, you're always on pins and needles because, you know, there's so much risk and you need so many different things to come together. And Angelo was a 30-year logistics veteran who started his career on the dock in New Jersey. So Angelo's pretty tough. And I swear to God, I answer the phone, hello, is this Drew? Yes. This is Angelo Ventrone. Holy shit. Yes, sir. What can I do for you? <laughs> LinkedIn says you're starting a company. What the hell is a transfix? Oh, my God. Okay. And, and so what do you do, right? If, if, if the only choice is to pitch. I mean, when in doubt, pitch. Uh, and so I pitched. Um, and, and Angelo, I, I bust his chops about this years later, he was silent the whole time. So I'm just pitching. And all I hear on the other end of the phone is breathing. And so the words start coming faster and faster and faster. And he's just breathing. And finally, I said to him, please, Angelo, for the love of God, please just say something. <laughs> and I'll never forget what he said. And I know this is a PG-13 podcast, so I'll try to keep the cursing to a minimum. But I'll never forget <laughs> the silence. He goes, Drew, this is fucking beautiful. Is this, <laughs> is this possible? I was like, Angelo, holy shit. It is completely possible. I've got this French <laughs> partner of mine. 
He's building the technology. He tells me it's totally doable. Like, we're doing it. And I, 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 like I said, I'll never forget, man. It's seared into my brain. He goes, okay, sounds good to me. I'm in. And, like, I mean, you got to understand, Alejandro, on the back of my mind, I was like, is this, is this really happening right now? Like, my biggest fear was who's going to be the, the, the first customer, you know, that first fish. And here the fish is jumping out of the lake into the boat. Oh, my God. And so I said, okay, yes, sir. Thank you very much. I said, well, um, here it is, August. We're preparing for a January go live. Uh, in the next couple of weeks, I'll come to your office. We'll plan all, all the launch out, and, and we'll go live in January. And he goes, January? What are you talking about? You got me all excited. And I said, oh, shit. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 no. We're starting next week. And I said, sir, um, we, we, we can't start next week. I, and in my own mind, I don't, I'm not even incorporated yet. <laughs> like, forget having the product. I don't, even, I don't even have a license to do business. He goes, we're going to start. And I said, I, I can't. I can't start next week. He says, well, he says, I think you want to do business with me. So it's probably a pretty good idea we start next week. You've always been a smart kid. I'm sure you'll figure it out. And he hung up on me. Wow. And also, this um, triggered an investment. So, so, I was so like, what you've got to be kidding. And, and it did. It, it literally, that was like a magic bullet. Uh, and so, uh, you're correct. I was, I was in San Francisco, staying actually with a personal friend of mine uh, who overheard this conversation. And he looked at me, and he's like, oh, my God, it's amazing news. And I, and I looked at him, and I said, I'm dead. I, I, I'm not going to be able to deliver on this in any way. I'm going to fail before I even get out of the gate. And this actual person happens to be... Uh, I, uh, he happens to be a, a doctor, like a medical doctor. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm freaking out. And he and he's like, OK, 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 calm down. And he carries one of those like little old school, like leather doctor, like house call satchels, you know, and he like he reaches and he grabs it and he starts to open it up. And I'm like, man, I'm freaking out. I'm not having a heart attack. Like, give me a break. And he goes, oh, shut up. And he reaches in his in his in his doctor satchel and he pulls out his personal checkbook. And he looks at me and he goes, okay, well, how much capital is it going to take you to get this off the ground the way you need to? And, and, and I, I mean, honestly, Andre, at that point, I'm, my, my jaw is just, and I'm like, really? And, but listen, I'm not stupid. <laughs> I was like, well, I think I need about 150K. And he goes, okay. And he wrote me a check for 150K. Now, I have to explain, I didn't even have a promissory note to get. I'm like, I'm like, uh, Austin, what do you want me to do? He goes, you're going to give me the note, right? You're not going to screw me over. I was like, of course not. He's like, well, then, then what the hell are we worried about? Take the check and do what you got to do. Wow. Oh, my and God. And was, was the 150K just a number that you thought about, or you actually had planned for the 150K? I mean, no, we, we had done, we had done uh, you know, some planning, as you do. Now, I mean, our preliminary model, like most of them, is, is rife with holes. But we, we <laughs> yeah. thought we needed about 100K. Okay. Uh, to get to to get to the point where we could raise a seed, so I just said 150. <laughs> um, I love it. I love it. Uh, you know, you got to add a little padding, right? Uh, oh, of so, course. So we, you know, and so the funniest part is he 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 writes the check and he hands it to me, and I didn't have the heart to tell him that I couldn't even cash the check because I didn't have a bank account. I didn't have a company. Yet. Um, but nonetheless, uh, you know, you get scrappy, right? And we, um. You know, 
it's amazing and thinking about it in retrospect, but we did it, man. We, we incorporated the business, you know, in a matter of 24 hours, we deposited the check. Um, and come the following week, we started shipping with Barnes and Noble. Uh, and, and what's funny to me now, I don't know if it was funny then it's funny now. Um, <laughs> we were faking it completely. We had no technology, like the product vision as we articulated didn't exist. So we were basically beginning to ramp the business in a, in a way that was, you know, bluntly speaking, not differentiated from our traditional competitors. Um, but I got to say, man, both Angelo and Barnes and Noble, they had our back. They knew that we didn't have anything yet, but they, they wanted to partner with us early and provide feedback and help shepherd us. Um, and, and, you know, now, you know, you know, eight years later, uh, Barnes and Noble is still a customer. Angelo has, has since moved on to another company that is also a customer. Uh, and, and Angelo remains a, a dear friend. And I, you know, years later over beers, uh, maybe too many beers. I said to him, you know, man, what the hell? Like, why did you do that to me? Like, that was totally unnecessary. And he kind of got that like mischievous look in his eye that he gets, and he's like, well, I just really wanted to see if you could do it. <laughs> I was like, you know, you son of a bitch. But, but to his credit, I mean, he did. He did then get serious and say, hey, listen, you had revenue nine months before you thought you were going to. That was probably a good thing, wasn't it? And I, and you know, in, in in fairness to him, I think that revenue, that was one of my biggest lessons through this whole journey. Of course, of which there are more 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 lessons via scar tissue than I would like to admit. But if you're thinking of starting something, start it. Like take the revenue. Like this whole like iterating the product to perfection before you before you launch uh, is just not a, a healthy path. Um, Totally. And so and that, that worked out really well for us. We, we leveraged that Barnes and Noble relationship and, you know, some other small wins. Uh, and, you know, nine months after we launched, we were, we were out raising a seed. So I guess hey, for the people, before we go into the, into the seed and, and into the fundraising, you know, kind of like uh, cycles that, uh, that you've experienced and especially the expectations are going to be interesting for the people that are listening to really get it. What ended up being the business model of Transfix? Sure. So Transfix is at its core, it's a two-sided B2B marketplace. So the demand side for us is um, businesses, by and large, large businesses, but not always, uh, that need to ship large quantities, meaning truckloads of goods, generally 20,000 plus pounds. Um, so that is the demand, is actual shipments that need to move from point A to point B. Um, and then on the other side of our marketplace, the supply side, we work with uh, several hundred thousand uh, independent truck drivers and small trucking companies uh, and, and ultimately act as the marketplace. There are, as you can perhaps imagine in your mind's eye, there are similarities between our business for, for goods and, for, and, and with ride sharing for people. Uh, of course, there's many differences as well. Uh, amongst others, that our businesses is spread uh, over all 48 states in Canada, and generally goods move at least 800 miles at a time. Uh, so it's a big marketplace. Um, historically, trucking is an incredibly inefficient business, and so there's tremendous waste in the way these mechanisms work historically. And so why not layer technology, 
uh, in the form of mobile technology to the drivers and sort of modern data science in the form of AI and ML and create effectively better pricing and better mousetraps. Uh, and then as we've expanded, we have layered on top of that uh, additional software products that allow us to sort of level, uh, deepen the relationship and widen the moat with, with sort of both sides of our market. And I see as well that, uh, I mean, you were going to talk about the seed round and and I see that in total now you guys have raised a little bit over 128 million. But I guess I want to ask you, like, what has been the uh, expectations, you know, and how those have changed over time from from round to round that you've seen on, on investors? Sure. Um, well, I, I would say certainly uh, as as the rounds move forward and the checks get bigger, the expectations become much more specific. Right. I mean, in my view, if you're raising a seed round, there's a few boxes you have to check. Right. If you're raising a seed round, what do you really need? I believe you need compelling founders. You need significant market pain. You need a really big space in that which that a pain exists. And you need an intellectually invigorating theses as to how you can solve that pain and why you are uniquely qualified to do it, right? And in my view, if you sort of check those boxes, more times than not, you can probably raise some seed capital, right? Um, I think that is the sort of the last time <laughs> you get to get away with being sort of like hand wavy and be like, oh, well, we can do this and this and this. and because in my experience, um, once you start taking capital, the vast majority of the conversations become about quantitative results. Yeah. What have you done with my money? Uh, which is a very reasonable question to ask. Um, and so, yes, you have to, of course, be able to articulate vision and where you're going. And, you know, if you have a, a slight down quarter or, you know, this hiccup or that hiccup, you bet that a, a you know a compelling vision and narrative around how we're going to you know deal with this current issue is obviously critical but to me it, once you get going it's 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 80% scoreboard um and and sort of the expectations for that scoreboard continue to get bigger as the company and the checks get bigger uh and the and the investigator uh, excuse me the um investors become more more sophisticated and more savvy i mean you know we specifically have been very fortunate to not only raise, you know, a, a significant amount of capital, as you've mentioned, uh, but we've been further fortunate to do so from, you know, what I consider to be some of the, the, the best investors in the world. Um, and to me, uh, that's another one of those things that I have learned very, very clearly from the beginning. I mean, I remember in the early days when we were trying to raise capital, which interestingly, I think the seed round was actually the hardest round for us to raise. Um, which is interesting, but nonetheless, as as we've gotten as we've gotten further along, you know the the, the like I say the level the level of expectations uh, get higher, but but at the same time, your your sort of team around you is able to contribute more. So it is um, it is an ever growing uh, and and certainly intense process. But if you do it properly, the value that that's what I was going to say. The difference to me between a like a, a quality investor. And a, and, a, and a check and, and like forget dumb money, like dumb money is bad, but there's worse than dumb money, right? There's 
there's mean money, or there's angry money, or there's negative money. Um, and those things, those things can kill a business. Um, and so you, you have to be very, very careful, in my estimation, as you do these things, uh, to not to not put yourself in a bad place. So in that regard, you know, something really interesting that you mentioned there, dumb money and mean money. So how do you how do you actually filter uh, through the dumb money and the mean money so that you actually capture the, the money from from actively involved and aligned investors? Yeah, so I don't I don't think there's a, a real magic bullet for this. Um, I mean, the truth is, unless you are some sort of blessed human who <laughs> I'm sure it happens to some founders and I just don't know any of them. But like the truth is, in almost all cases, this is hard. Like to build what it is you want to build, it's hard. And it's going to take longer than you think. And it's going to take more capital than you think. And it's going to take more, it's going to take more of your soul. Uh, and so you, you better know that you are getting into a relationship with someone that you can't break up with them. Unless you have a big pile of money where you can buy them out, you can't break up with these people. Uh, and and again, it's going to take time. You're going to be you're going to be in the in the trenches for you know at what at least five years, right? Um, and so, you know, I, I I think of two things. One, talk to all the references you can get, right? Like it's not what they tell you; it's what people who do business with them say about them. Um, so that's one. And then the other, and, and this actually is a, is a more general piece of advice for a variety of reasons as it comes to raising capital, but you have to interview them as much as they're interviewing you. Uh, and I think that's a good strategy anyway, because if you look weak to a venture investor, they're never going to write you a check anyway. Um, so the comfort in your own skin to, you know, and of course, you have to do this tactfully. This is not about like when I say interrogate, interrogate, I mean that jokingly. You have to interview them, but you, you have to do it in a way that, you know, develops the relationship. But you have to parse and ask questions. How do you run your business? And what do you do? What do you do when shit hits the fan? Right? Like it's very easy to be an investor when valuations are big and everybody's getting bought. And, you know, it's been a been a nice run, you know, pre-COVID. Uh, or pre-WeWork, or however you want to define the, the sort of chilliness that we've all been feeling here for the last nine months. Uh, but that's just a natural part of the business cycle. And, you know, some might describe that as chilly, which it is. Another way to describe it is to say that in some ways, the power dynamic has started to shift back a little bit to the investor side. Now, that's in aggregate, of course. Everything happens at the individual deal level. But when the times change, how do you, Mr. or Mrs. Investor, how do you respond? Uh, and those sorts of things, you never really know, I don't believe. But the more you, the more you think you know, and, the, and to, the, to the extent that you're correct, I mean, listen, I, I have heard horror stories. Like we, we have been very lucky in the sort of current environment of, of COVID and everything else that's happened. Both our business has not... Um, our business, ultimately, the pandemic is actually acting as a, a net tailwind for our business. Again, going back to what I said before, we're very lucky. Um, yep. And so, you know, maybe things would be different if we were if we were a dumpster fire, um, but we're not. And our investors have been incredibly supportive and helpful. And I and I know others that are that are dear friends who are also working with you know very notable investors who have had 
I don't know how to describe it other than various forms of torture deployed upon them. And that yeah. is, um, it's just, it's heartbreaking to me. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it sure is important who you do business with. A hundred percent, a hundred percent, Drew. So, so for the folks that are listening to get an idea of how big Transfix is, I mean, anything you can tell us, you know, maybe number of employees or anything. Yeah, so we have uh, we have about uh, just over uh, low two hundreds uh, full time employees here in here in New York. Um, we are fortunate that those two hundred and plus employees are doing uh, we're doing hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. Uh, we are moving tens of millions of pounds of goods through all forty eight states uh, every day. Uh, as I sort of mentioned before, we do business with. Um, hundreds of thousands of trucking companies uh and i actually don't know the recent count but i think the last number i saw was something like 30 plus of the fortune 50 our customers very nice very nice so so how how do you think the market is going to evolve over time because obviously a market like this is pretty big so so any any thoughts on that uh you mean the the logistics market yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I, I do. I, I, you know, our our view um, is that, as, as I sort of mentioned before, historically logistics is um, very much not tech enabled. Everything is generally done as a one off, right? I mean, if you think about, I mentioned the, the sort of ride sharing analogy. If you think about like a historically taxi dispatch office, you know, smoke filled and dispatchers like screaming into microphones and stuff like that. That's in many ways what trucking looks like. Uh, and so we come along and we're like, guys, please, for the love of God, stop doing all of that. Like, here, download <laughs> this mobile app. We know where you're going to be, and we can help you get where you want to be from there in a much more seamless way. And amongst other things, I mean, I, I personally think that the sort of value of what I just uh, articulated is pretty clear. But amongst other things, we create economies of scale. Because the value creation, the way we think about things, comes from driving utilization of a truck as an asset. Meaning if you work with us, the same truck generates more revenue in a week than it would if you don't work with us. Uh, and so that is a critical value creation mechanism that is, frankly, we're already in many ways like sort of, you know, blowing the, the, the incumbents out of the water. But we're just getting better because, as you can imagine, like any good supply chain, density creates better results. We can create better matches with more density of shipments and loads as we scale. And our traditional competitors, because they, have, they do everything as a one-off, they actually have diseconomies of scale because they can't get enough skilled people in a room. Uh, and so as that continues to play out, of course, there's going to be lots of thrashing around and, and lots of competitive battling. But our general view, so this industry is called freight brokerage. Freight brokerage in the United States is about $120 billion, give or take. Wow. Um, and there's about 1,500 companies that are freight brokerages. Um, we view in the next 10 years, by the end of it, there will probably be five to 10 companies. Wow. I mean, what a transformation on the market. That's, a, that's for sure. I, I, I have, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough that, um, one of my mentors is is, is Jeff Immelt, um, and he he's uh, he's very much enjoying life these days. And one of the things he's doing is teaching a class at Stanford, uh, and it's basically like a case study class. And he said, "Oh, we 
we'd love to study you guys for the class. And I, of course I was incredibly flattered and I was like, why? <laughs> like, to me, it's just like trucking. It's like dirty and not sexy. And, and, and he, he's like, well, that's not what matters. It's, it, it's to your point, it's the transformation and the narrative. And I think sometimes I'm so close to it that you, you fail to see it, but you're absolutely right. Like it is, it is in, in truth. It is very cool. Like I, I joke with people, but every day feels like a case study. I have no idea what's going to happen. I woke up last year and now I'm competing with Uber. You wake up last week and like Amazon is like, oh, this seems interesting. And then, you know, very, very large company calls and wants to be a, I mean, there is so much dynamism. It is a uh, often torturous, but it is an incredibly exciting place to be every day. Well, definitely sounds exciting. So, so Drew, one question that I always ask the, the guests that come on the show is, knowing what you know now, I mean, you've been at it now for, for a while with Transfix, and, you know, like you've had your fair amount of uh, lessons learned along the way. So, so if you could go back in time and, and maybe to that time where you were having beers uh, with a uh. co-founder uh, and maybe thinking about, like, that venture that you guys were going to start, if you could go back in time and maybe sit at that table, you know, and, and give the two of you one piece of advice, knowing what you know now. What would you What would you say, and and why? So that's a great question. Um, I think, I think I'm trying to, because honestly, there are so many answers to what you just asked me. I mean, that that's the truth. I, I think about how naive I was then, and that's not to say that I'm not naive now, but I I, I have without question come a very, very, very long way. And so there is many things that I could advise previous versions of myself, but what would have the most leverage is the way I'm trying to think about your question. And to me, I think I know the answer. Um, the way I, one of the things that we're always talking about is how every person, at least you hope every person, but every, every good, talented person has a superpower. And success is often about structuring things so that you get everyone in a seat that takes the most advantage of their superpower. Um, and so I had one of our investors say to me, gosh, it was probably two years ago now. You guys are doing a great job, but it's always the Drew and Jonathan show. And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, Whenever we have a board meeting or a strategic conversation, it's you. It's you two. You guys are transfix. And to really be the business that you want to be, you're going to need to build out your executive team, which I think is a, a, state, a part that comes in any you know, company's scaling journey. But at least in the viewpoint of this investor, we started that process too late. And what I've come to realize in the intervening 24 months is just how incredibly talented these people are. We have been so unbelievably fortunate to recruit a team that takes my breath away. Like I've always said, sort of jokingly, sort of serious, sort of philosophically, I want to hire such that I'm the dumbest person in every room that I walk into. Um, and then one day, like six months ago, I was in a room with like my partner and our head of data science and like three of our head engineers. And they started talking about things and I had no idea what the hell they were talking about. <laughs> and I was like, oh shit, what's happening? <laughs> um, but, but sort of that, 
the velocity increase and the quality increase and all that has come along with building a team of, of world-class operators. Man, I think about if we had only done that two years earlier. Now, in fairness, we may not have been able to. We may not have been able to recruit that level of talent. You know, frankly speaking, we probably didn't have the, you know, the, the, the truly requisite capital to do it. Um, but, you know, I think that's one of the differences between first-time founders and second-time founders is you can skip a lot of the mistakes and move a little bit more quickly, perhaps. You know, if for no other reason than perhaps people are more willing to take a, a chance on you if you've got a track record. Um, but seeing what our, well, frankly, every one of them, what our, what our executive team can do vis-a-vis um, -vis even me, right? I'm just like, okay, cool. I get to hang out and help all you guys now. This is amazing. Um, the earlier you can start on that journey and effectively start multiplying yourself, or in the case of me, adding an exponent to yourself, um, I think that's the path, the fastest path to success. That's amazing. So then, Drew, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Sure. Uh, so I'm I'm fairly accessible. I like to think my name is Drew McElroy, M C E L R O Y. The company is Transfix. You know, spelt like the word. So I'm my email address is Drew at Transfix.io, uh, and you can find us in you know pretty much all of the social channels, whether that be Facebook or Instagram or LinkedIn or anything like that. So I would certainly love to to chat. I I'm acutely aware that. I would never have made it to where I am uh, if it wasn't for the help of countless wonderful people. And so I, I try to do everything I can to bend over backwards to help people who are who are where I was a couple of years ago. So if there's anything I can do to help anybody listening or if this story is inspirational or anybody wants to chat further, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. Amazing. Well, Drew, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Alejandro, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Stay safe out there, man. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.